You've probably seen in advertisements or commercials these before and after pictures. Where there's, a, there's the before picture and there's this person, they're standing there and they're looking unhappy and flabby and out of shape and the lighting is bad and it's a low quality picture and they, just, they look rather dull and uninspired. And then right next to it, in, in crisper color and lighting, obviously a professional photographer or something, there is the after picture. And the person is standing there smiling confidently shimmering with life and vitality, the picture of, of health. And what the advertisers, I suppose, want you to wonder is, what happened between the before and after picture? I mean, you're looking at it, you're like, how did it get from there to there? What, what was that process in between? What is that process of maturity that brings you and me from where we are now to where we should be, where we're intended to be. It's a question like that that was raging in the church in Colossae, the church to whom Paul writes the letter that you've opened up to in your New Testament. He's writing a letter to the church in Colossae, as we looked at last time, and the whole question is this, where does true maturity come from? How will you and I become what we are meant to be? And as we looked at last time, this is no dead question. People are still wondering how we can we become our full potential? How do we reach the full authentic self that we're meant to be? And the answer to that question or the attempted answer to that question are, are so many. You look at any self-help section in a bookstore and you'll find all kinds of ideas about how we are to achieve our potential, whatever that potential might be. So this is no dead, antiquated, ancient, first century question. It's a question that people continue to wrestle with today. How can we be mature? How can we be what we are meant to be? And the problem in the church in Colossae was this. They had begun their spiritual lives by their faith in Jesus Christ, but there are some people that were luring them away from Jesus as that which would complete their maturity. Maybe it's a program of self-discipline. Maybe it's denying ourselves of certain things. Maybe we just need more knowledge. Maybe there's some mysteries that we haven't attained to. Whatever the specific teaching was in the church of Colossae, the effect was this. Jesus isn't sufficient. So Paul, not having even met the Colossians, hears this from Epaphras, who was a preacher to them, and he sits down to write this letter. And what is the message of, of Colossians? What is Paul so concerned to communicate to these people who are in danger of being lured away from Christ as the sole source of their maturity? He's saying this, you have been filled in Christ. You don't need anything else to be mature. So he says in chapter 2, near the very beginning, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You don't need anything besides Jesus Christ because Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who informs your affections, who restructures your values and priorities. He is the one who brings together like glue all your relationships. And this is what Paul is explaining the rest of the letter. He's saying you need to set your affection on Christ. You need to let dads and moms, let your relationship with your parents be all about Jesus. Children, young people, you need to let your relationship with your mom and dad be shaped by Jesus. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, what? So walk in him. 
So it's a simple answer that true maturity is found in Christ alone, but it's a lifetime of learning. Why? Because in him, in Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that's the central message of Colossians. Now, how would Paul begin such a letter? Like, how is he going to start out? What is he going to start out talking about in this letter in Colossians? So after the first, the greeting, he identifies himself as Paul, an apostle that is a sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. And he addresses the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae and wishes grace and peace from God to them. Grace, that's what they need. That's how they were saved. Peace, that's the wholeness, the fullness the thriving, the flourishing that they are supposed to be experiencing that he's going to be talking about the rest of the letter. And then after that initial opening, he begins by telling the Colossians what he is praying for them about. And Paul's prayer begins with a thanksgiving. He is telling, God, telling the Colossians what he thanks God for. And what is he thanking God for? He is thanking God that he sees in the Colossians true signs of life. That's what he's thanking God for. Here's life. I'm seeing life in you. Some of you like to grow things, like plants. <laughs> Some of you try growing things and it doesn't work out so well. Now, I, I don't consider myself a grower, but I have seen plants on a, a brown field, just bare dirt, dry dirt, and I've seen these little plants pushing their way up through the clods of soil. And there is something beautiful and exciting about that. Like the first signs of life. The first signs of, shall we say, maturity. And so Paul is looking at this field of Colossae and he's seeing there's a sprout of green there. There's a sprout of green there. Oh, it's the sign of life. And he says, I'm thanking God that I see life in your life. Spiritual life. Genuine spiritual life. So let me ask you this question. What would be the evidence for true spiritual life? True life in Jesus Christ. How does it show itself? What's the little green sprout that is pushing its way through the soil of a person's life who is genuinely alive in Jesus Christ? And here it is. Paul is giving the evidence for life and then he's going to talk about the growth of life. The evidence for life and the growth of life. We see the evidence of life in verse 3, verse 3, 4, and 5, and the growth of life in verses 6, 7, and 8. So that's how we'll divide our, our sermon today. The evidence of true spiritual life and then the growth of that life. So first of all, the evidence of life. What is the evidence of true spiritual life? There are three qualities that Paul mentions here. You see them? First of all, faith and then love, and then hope. He says this, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, love, and hope. Now, when I mention faith, love, and hope, for some of you who have read your Bibles many times, that may remind you of several other passages of Scripture. Because by just saying faith, love, and hope, it's almost like we're drilling down into something and we've, we've hit like a subterranean river. Because this theme comes up multiple times throughout the New Testament. Actually, another ten times in the New Testament, this triad of qualities, faith, love, and hope, are mentioned. I think that's kind of important. So when Paul wants to list the evidence that these people are alive spiritually, 
He talks about faith, love, and hope. And we're going to walk through these th three things one at a time. So the first part of the sermon is going to be longer than the second part. So don't panic by the time I get to the end of the first part and, and think, oh no, he still has that much to go left. It's going to be long and then short, okay? Just so you know what I'm doing. Because, because we need to spend some more time seeking to understand what this faith and what this love and what this hope is. The great theologian Augustine was asked by a young believer to write a handbook of Christian doctrine covering all kinds of questions. What's the relationship between faith and reason? Uh, and, and what should Christians believe and how should Christians act? And, and Augustine actually wrote such a book. He called it Handbook. Just is small. But he said in the opening of that book, he said, all these questions could be answered if only you study deeply the objects of faith, love, and hope. Like throughout the history, these have been called the, the theological virtues. So what is so important about them? I, I want to highlight just a couple things that makes them so important. Well, first of all, think about the culture that Paul is writing in. He, he is, he's writing in this, this Roman empire, this culture in which for the Roman male, the virtue that the Roman man most prized was a virtue called Octhoritas. We get our English word authority from it. And this, this virtue, authority or authoritas, had to do with being able to have clout and influence with people. You walk into a room and immediately people respect you. You suggest something and everyone caters to your suggestion. You argue something and people are convinced. It's this authority. That was the, the, the premier virtue. The thing that every Roman male aspired to. Consider how countercultural faith and love and hope are. In, in, a, in a culture in which this authoritas, this gravity, this influence that was so, so focused on self, so temporal, and, and, and so uh, non-dependent, but rather independent, how counterculture this is. Faith and love and hope in Paul's day were countercultural virtues. But also in looking at the importance of this, consider the opposite of faith, love, and hope. Doubt, despair, and hatred. What world of misery could not be created by such ingredients? Doubt, despair, and hatred. So it makes sense then that when Paul brings forth the evidence of spiritual life, he's putting forth these three qualities. What about this faith? Let's begin with faith. Many people consider themselves to be people of faith. And if you take faith as basic trusting in something, then we can say that everybody trusts in something, so everybody's a person of faith. But the faith that Paul is talking about here is not just a generic faith in anything. He specifies it as faith in what? Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and this faith means not just I believe that he existed... I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross. It's not just a merely intellectual kind of faith. It's a faith that transfers everything that I would trust in to everything he is. Everything I've done to everything he's done. Everything I am to everything he is. That's this kind of faith. It's a total transfer of, of faith. It'd be like the difference between looking at that chair and, and saying, I believe that chair can hold me up. And actually walking over to it and letting my weight rest in that chair. That's the kind of faith that Paul is talking about. And he sees this at work in the lives of the Colossians. And he's saying, I thank God that I see this first sprout of evidence of life in your life. 
Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We also see love. Because faith can never be left alone by itself. It always comes. True faith is always accompanied by love. Because after all, how will anyone know whether this faith is real? How can anyone know whether your faith is real? What's the true test of genuine faith? Make it the hardest test possible. Make it the thing that goes against our very nature. Make it the very thing that asks us to give of ourselves rather than to get for ourselves. That's love. That's why love is the perfect test for genuine faith. Because love goes against your very self, our very self-centered nature. This evidence of true spiritual life in the Colossians is not only faith, but it's also love. Why? Because love is what faith looks like when it's in action. Love is faith in action. It's sacrificial love. And it's not love just for the people that we like. Not just for the people that are around us, around whom we feel safe and entertained and jolly around. Like, I like that guy. He's a lot like me. He likes me, so I like him. That's not, it's not this discriminate, partial sort of love. Because look what Paul says. He said, the faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints. That's not what he said. I skipped the word. What word did I skip? The love that you have for all the saints. Now this is not discriminating love. This is love for every saint, for every believer in Christ. Not just the ones who are like you. Not just the ones who like you. But everybody. This is hard to do. That's why love is such a good test for, of genuine faith. And why didn't he say this? Why didn't he say, I thank God since I heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for God. You think about it. He didn't say just the love you have for God, although that's certainly implied. He said the love you have for all the saints. Why would he say love for other people rather than love for God as being the true test of spiritual life? Well, here's the reason. It's really easy to say you love God. Oh, I love God so much. Well, how does anybody know whether that love is genuine? How does anybody know whether, know whether the God that you say you love isn't just the God of your own ideals? A God that agrees with everything that you think about. A God of your imagination. Well, here's the real test. Not if you say, I love God. The real test of love is if you're able to look at someone who's unlike you, who looks different from you, who acts different than you, who smells different than you do, and you love them, and you embrace them like a brother or sister. Aye, right, this is love for all the saints. This is selfless, outward, sacrificial love as an evidence of true life. Now, I'm going to say something. We've talked about faith and we're talking about love right now as the evidence for spiritual life. I'm going to say something that may sound radical, but it is absolutely biblical. And it is this. Where that sort of love doesn't exist, true Christianity doesn't exist. Where that sort of love doesn't exist, True Christianity doesn't exist. You could have all the theology you want. You could have every I dotted and every T crossed. But if the firewood of your doctrine doesn't catch the fire of love, it's pointless. 
I mean, theology and what you believe is meant to explode into the flame of love. It's meant to be put into action. It's not meant to just be a stockpile of lumber in your mind. If it's not flowing out in true good works and love. I mean, isn't this what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? He said, though I have all faith so that I could move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. This is what Jesus was saying when he was speaking to his disciples in the upper room discourse. He said, by this all men will know that you are my followers if you have love for one another. This is the true test of spiritual life. Why? Because love flows from faith. And where love is not, there is to be a question whether the faith is genuine. No wonder Paul puts forth faith and love as the evidence of spiritual life. Why? Because love and faith, they dance together. They're inseparable. Now, someone might say, wow, I like, it. I like all this talk about love. I'm not so sure about the faith thing. It seems kind of restrictive. I mean, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't that narrow it down a little bit too much? If you think about it, we cannot love as we should unless we believe how much we have been loved. And that is our faith. I mean, Christians believe that we have been loved beyond imagination. This much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the radical love of God that blows our imagination. And it's only because we believe that we are loved so much and we deserve it so little that we are able then to turn around and show that kind of love to other people. You see how faith and love are inseparable. If we did not believe that we are so loved, we could not show the love that God has shown us. So faith... We can't just say, hey, love, I like that. Let's push the faith to the side. No, it is, it is the faith in the love that God has for us that is the motivation and impetus and spring of our love for other people. They're inseparable. Just as love does not exist without faith, so faith does not exist without love. So these two things, and then a third that we're going to look at in just a second, are the evidence that Paul is thanking God for. He's saying, I thank God... Since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints, but there is a third. And what is it? It is hope. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. My wife has been teaching catechisms to our children. Catechisms are a sort of question and answer format of learning doctrine. And one of the catechisms, one of the questions goes like this. What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer, which I've heard from the lips of all my children, including my youngest three-year-old, is this. That we are not our own, but that we belong to God. Our only hope in life and death. As I was studying these qualities this past week, I was just loving digging into this idea of faith. And I was reading on this idea of love and how they're inter interconnected. And then I got to hope. And I realized I didn't know much about hope. Why? I think that as American Christians, we are so comfortable. 
We live in such luxury that this whole idea of hope has been dulled from our vision. We've built our heaven on earth. What need do we have to hope? And yet that forward-looking anticipation is an integral part of Christian life. It permeates every aspect of the way that we live. It, it permeates the way that we engage ourselves in the world. Why? This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our treasure, our home, our life, our love is laid up for us in heaven. This is what Paul is talking about, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, to understand what this hope is, we must have a clear understanding to distinguish it from the hope so or wishful thinking kind of hope that is another meaning in English of the word hope. This is not the hope that said, I, I hope that our team wins. I don't know if it will or not, but I hope it does. Or, I hope it doesn't snow before the end of October. Right? I hope it doesn't, but it might. I don't know. I just wish it doesn't, but it's kind of a hopefulness that we're not really sure. That is not the Christian hope, okay? The Christian hope is instead a confident expectation that informs our present life. You contrast it with faith. Faith believes things about the past and the present and the future. Faith, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that his death for me has certain effects right now. And I believe that someday in the future, I'll be with him, right? Faith encompasses past, present, and future. But here's what hope does. Hope focuses on the future. And it animates and energizes us for the present. Faith is the belief that sap runs through the maple trees. Hope, hope runs out and puts the buckets Hangs the buckets on the tree so the sap flows into it. Faith believes that daddy's going to go home from work. Hope waits on the porch until he does. It's the difference between faith and hope. But for the Christian, the thing that we hope for will not be realized in this life, but in the life to come. Now someone who may not be a believer or someone who is just looking at the Christian faith from the outside may say something like this, okay, well, then Christianity is a, a wishful thinking kind of religion or faith. But I think that anyone can recognize if, you to, if you're to look in, into your own heart and desires, you'll discover that the things that you crave most cannot be fulfilled in this life. You'll, you'll find that over and over again. You fall in love. And for the first time, you think you found heaven. And then that somehow wears off and you realize that what you had been looking for when you felt like you were falling in love, it didn't get satisfied somehow. Or you get the job that you always wanted and as soon as you got it, you, you thought, this is it. And then as soon as you had it and you continued to be in it, you realized, whatever I was looking for when I was looking for that job, I didn't end up getting even though I have the job now. And it's one thing after another, reaching for something, grasping at something, trying to touch something, and it's like a bubble that's shiny and shimmery and it pops as soon as your finger hits it. It's, it's your, what, what is it? it? It's something about you. It's, it's this. You were not made to be satisfied by anything in this life. It's Christian hope that says, I was made for something more. A baby feels hunger craves its mother's milk. There is such a thing as milk. 
We get thirsty. There is such a thing as water. We crave for everlasting life and eternity. Perhaps it's because there is such a thing. This is exactly what the Bible is speaking about in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. He has put eternity in the heart of man. Yes, God has given you this God-shaped hole in your heart that only he can fill. This is the hope of the believer. It's that which energizes us for the present because we know that this life is not all there is to it. We're living for a life to come. But however, that hope does not mean that we just say, hey, who cares what I do right now in the world? Oh, this world's going to burn up. Let's just trash it. I don't care. No, no. This is a hope that makes us want to live godly lives right now. This is a hope that energizes all the good things we do as we look for and hasten to the coming of the Lord. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at these qualities, faith, love, and hope, I think that we should step back and think, how in the world can we show these kind of qualities in our lives? It could be that you're you're from the outside looking in at the Christian faith, trying to figure out what it's all about, and you're thinking, this would kind of be miraculous, kind of supernatural for people to live like this. You're exactly right. We looked at the evidence for Christian life, for true spiritual life, but the question we need to be asking is, how, how is this even possible? I mean, just take a peek into your own heart. Do you find faith? Do you find that kind of love that is selfless? Do you find hope? I think that if we're honest, we'll have to admit that we find instead of that doubt and resentment and despair, how does this spiritual life begin? And that's what Paul is talking about in the latter part of verse 5. He said, of this, referring to the hope, because the hope here is, is referring to the thing hoped for, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Here's where it started. It started when you heard a message, the good news, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And then he reminds him, reminds his readers, just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. But look at the day this started. We're looking at these qualities, this evidence of spiritual life, this supernatural love, this supernatural faith, this supernatural hope. Where does it come from? How does it start? Where did it start? Look at this. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, it started when the people understood something about the grace of God. It began when the people in Colossae finally realized that they can't achieve this faith on their own anyway. They can't accomplish this kind of love in the first place. They can't live in this sort of hope at all. Why? Because salvation is not something that can be earned, but it is the gift of God. That's the meaning of the word grace. It is a gift. It's something that God gives you. It's not something that you earn and achieve. This is exactly what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Where does spiritual life begin? It begins when someone recognizes, 
I have nothing. I can contribute nothing to my salvation. It is all a gift of God's grace. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is the grace manifested to us? It's even though that Jesus was rich, he became poor. He emptied himself so that we who are so impoverished, morally destitute, we have nothing to offer God, we can be made rich because of his grace. That's where spiritual life begins. That's how the evidence of faith and love and hope begins to sprout in people's lives. Not because they've achieved it. Not because of some program of self-discipline. Not because of some intellectual paradigm shift or aha moment. It is because God has, has given a gift to them. The gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and what he has done in dying on the cross for sinners. And offering his righteousness to us. Since the day you understood the grace of God in truth. That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Have you understood the grace of God in truth? Do you understand what it means that God is offering you a gift that you could not earn? It's not a result of your achievement or anything you can do. This is the, what it means to understand the grace of God in truth. I think this is a question everybody needs to ask themselves. Whether you're new to the Christian faith or not in the Christian faith or having lived in the Christian faith for a long time, do I understand the grace of God in truth? John Wesley was a young priest in the Anglican church in the 18th century. He was so zealous for religion to do something for God. He was such a disciplined young man he took this long voyage across the stormy Atlantic to go to the backward region of Georgia to preach to the Indians and try to tell them about Jesus. But on that trip, John Wesley, religious, zealous, active, pious, began to realize that he didn't even know the grace of God that he sought to preach. Across the Atlantic, the ship ran into this massive storm. It, it broke the mast of the ship. There's a group of Christians on that boat. They're called the Moravians. And the whole crew would have panicked if it hadn't been for the Moravians calming everyone and praying to God in their, in their faith. And, and John Wesley, he happened to be the chaplain of the ship. He realized that he was more concerned about his own safety than he was about anybody else. He saw in the Moravians a love that made him realize in his heart there was none. He gets to Georgia. He preaches. He's met with frustration and little results. He has a conversation with one of the Moravians who asked Wesley, do you know that Jesus has saved you? And he responded immediately, I do. Later on he wrote, I fear they were just vain words. And after many months of intense struggling, Wesley finally came to realize that the faith that he thought he had, he didn't have at all. He ended up going to a Bible study where someone was reading a book about the change that God works in someone's heart by God's grace and not our own efforts. And Wesley said that moment when he realized the grace of God in truth, he felt his heart strangely warmed and realized that he did trust Christ. Nothing that he himself could do, Christ alone for salvation. That's what it means to understand the grace of God in truth. 
My friends, that could be you this morning. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never realized there is nothing, absolutely nothing you could do to achieve this, it's a gift from God, you can just receive it by faith. And for those of you who are believers, who know the grace of God in truth, don't you want to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Don't you want to look at those qualities of faith and love and hope and say, I don't want them just to be little sprouts in my life. I want them to blossom and bloom and grow up and I want to bear fruit just like the fruit Paul is talking about here in this passage. Bearing fruit and increasing and growing. This is the sort of lives that we can have. And it all happens because of the grace of God as we understand the grace of God in truth. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. My friends, in the stillness of this time, before the chaos of the week hits you, let that question ring in your ears. Do I understand the grace of God in truth? Is the evidence of faith and love and hope, is it at work in my life? It can. It can as you realize that there is nothing you could do to achieve your salvation but to receive it as a gift from God. My friend, if that's, if that's true of you, if you're coming to the point where you realize for the first time you've not known this, you've not understood it, please talk to somebody. Pastor John and his wife Patty will be in the foyer near the Welcome Center right after the service. You could walk up to them and ask them, ask to pray with them. They could help you explain the truth to you. And if, if you're a believer this morning, take those qualities of faith and love and hope and say, Lord, please multiply these in my life. God will do that as you continue to understand the grace of God and truth.